thank you everyone for joining us for today's London Aesthetics Forum. Um, I'd like to begin by thanking the British Society of Aesthetics for sponsoring us and the Institute of Philosophy here at uh, Senate House for hosting us. Um, and if you'll join me in welcoming Professor Aaron Ridley of the University of Southampton, who will be speaking today on Sketchbooks of Genius. Um, just um, a, a little bit of a little bit of context, which <laughs> you'll you'll recognise as thinly disguised self self exculpation. Um, <clears throat> for the last few few years, I've been working on a whole bunch of essays on aesthetics of one sort or another. One lot on, as you might call it, straight aesthetics, is on its way out as a collection with with Oxford. And quite honestly, there are quite a lot of essays in there which would be much more suitable for this event. But I'm, I've, I've always felt that one shouldn't give talks where it's too late to put the thing right when somebody comes up with a devastating point. So, so all of those have to be embargoed. And the bad news is that what I've been working on for the last few years is not, as it were, straight aesthetics, but... Um, Nietzsche's aesthetics and Nietzsche and aesthetics and I thought gosh that's not great because not everybody is particularly thrilled or interested um, in Nietzsche so then I had the, the bright idea that, that on my menu of things that had to be written there were two left two essays left one of which was going to be really heavy duty Nietzsche scholarship so I thought not that one and the other one was blissfully kind of more or less just a, an empty piece of paper that is related to Nietzsche, but since it's all been written in the last few days, I've managed to keep Nietzsche out of it almost entirely. So um, I, I hope at no particularly serious cost and possibly in a way that will be found welcome. <clears throat> Okay, so th th this, I should say, is the only moment that approaches any visual interest whatsoever. Okay. <laughs> um, and you, you'll see I place the bar for visual interest quite low. You know, I think that's interesting. <clears throat> okay, the, the most obvious reasons, probably, to be interested in a dead philosopher's sketchbooks, so this is kind of straddles philosophy and aesthetics, are to find out what he thought and to find out how he thought. We might hope, for example, to get a better sense of what a published passage means by referring to unpublished sketches on the same topic, or we might hope to get a better sense of how he got from the sketches to the published version. In the former case, we're focusing on the product, the thought, in the latter, on the process, the thinking, the refining. There are some tricky issues in this vicinity, and I'll be coming to some of them shortly. I want to begin, though, with something that Nietzsche, himself a philosopher who left a goodly number of sketchbooks behind him, once said on a closely related topic. Since its upshots are, well, I, I, I've, what I've got written here is, its upshots are, I think, quite interesting. This should really read, since its upshots are, I once thought, quite interesting. <clears throat> After he'd broken with Wagner in 1876, one of the things Nietzsche was keenest to do was prick the pretensions of genius, and especially of the alleged role 
of inspiration in the creative process. So to believers in so-called inspiration, he says, it is as if the idea of a work of art, a poem, the basic proposition of a philosophy, flashed down from heaven like a ray of divine grace. In reality, the imagination of a good artist or thinker is productive continually of good, mediocre, and bad things, but his power of judgment, sharpened and practiced to the highest degree, rejects, selects, knots together. As we can now see from Beethoven's sketchbooks, how the most glorious melodies were put together gradually and, as it were, culled out of many beginnings. For present purposes, I think that I, I want to sort of note three points about that passage. <clears throat> First, that like Kant in the case of art, Nietzsche takes the culling out of many beginnings to shed light on the role of judgment in the creative process. And as Kant puts it, the artist, quotes, guides his work and after many often laborious attempts to satisfy taste, finds the form which commends itself to him. The second point is that unlike Kant, Nietzsche regards art and philosophy as analogous in the relevant respects. And third, that the art that he takes to parallel philosophy most directly, or at any rate most proximately, is music. Now, in this essay I focus just on the final two points. So the thing that, that Nietzsche, unlike Kant, thinks of art and philosophy as relevantly analogous, and that the place where he thinks that the analogue is closest is between philosophy and music. So it makes sense that Nietzsche should have highlighted music. Aestheticians often distinguish between two broad metaphysical categories of artwork, the autographic and the allographic, well, and they're used to anyway. And what, 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 what I've noticed in recent years is that um, the preferred terminology seems to have become the, the non-repeatable versus the repeatable, which just, to me, feels flat and ugly. So you know, I'm, I'm sticking with the autographic, allographic way of at least representing the distinction, which derives, as I'm sure everyone knows, from Goodman. And I won't go into any of the details of anything that Goodman says. So it gets better and better. Very little nature and no Goodman. So the distinction, autographic artworks, those exist as one-offs, the signed painting, the sculpted marble, the happening, etc. whereas allographic works are multiply instantiable, pieces of music or choreography, novels, plays, poems, and so on. Some works are both. The Lindisfarne Gospels, for instance, is autographic in its illuminations, allographic in its text. And philosophy, it seems clear, lines up with music on the allographic side of the divide. Of course, there's such a thing as the handwritten manuscript of Human All Too Human that Nietzsche sent to his publisher, and that's autographic, but the book itself is allographic. Your copy of it instantiates it every bit as much as mine does. So in terms of end product, Nietzsche's works and Beethoven's melodies belong together. Intuitively, one would, expect, one would expect the autographic allographic distinction to carry over into the sketches for those products. And so it does. 
For instance, the sketch for an autographic work is always itself autographic, which is why, for example, Leonardo's sketchbooks are so significant. They not only account for much of what we know about him, the attention to nature and anatomy, the mysticism, the wacky inventions, they also, in a not altogether, not altogether subsidiary sense, count as Leonardo's. Indeed, most exhibitions of his work include many more sketches than paintings. Nor is our willingness to count those sketches as Leonardo's a function simply of the scarcity of his paintings. We've got fewer than 20 of them. Rather, it seems it's because Leonardo is, in a sense, imminent to his sketches. When we see him go about a herb, a hand, a helicopter, we see the lines and marks on the paper just as he made them. We feel his very presence in the smudges on the page. So every one of his sketches is a one-off, something that exists only there. It is, one can say, I think, without any stretch. It's part of his oeuvre. And the same metaphysical carryover holds, mutatis mutandis, for sketches for allegraphic works. A sketch for one of those is always itself allegraphic, which is why, when you acquire a copy of Beethoven's sketchbooks, you can see the culling out of many beginnings, as Nietzsche has it, in its entirety, just as you could if you were in possession of the originals. So sketches and finished products <clears throat> all share a metaphysical character as either autographic or allographic. And sketches in both cases always count as experiments, but probably in distinct senses, depending on the metaphysics. As a crude approximation, <coughs> and I think this really is too crude, this approximation, as a crude approximation, we might say that while an, while an autographic sketch experiments with the how, an allegraphic sketch experiments with the what. Leonardo tries out different ways of rendering a hand. Beethoven tries out different sequences of note, notes, different content. And this is, of course, a massive oversimplification. For example, a painter's experiments might be undertaken to determine whether it is an upturned or a downturned hand that he needs here. A composer's to determine the proper details of orchestration. But even where this is so, the former sketch is still an exercise in how to capture a hand, turned up or down. The latter's still an attempt to decide what sounds to include. This brings out one of the ways in which sketches can stand in different relations to the creative process as a whole, as concerned with the how, say, rather than the what. Another, obviously, is that some sketches are rejected and so play no further, part, no further part in that process, while others are endorsed. Endorsement, however, amounts to distinct things, depending on the, whether the sketches are autographic or allographic. When Leonardo endorses the sketch of a hand, this means he has found a way of rendering a hand that he proposes to adopt in the painting, in the production of the painting, for which the sketch was a sketch. Or, to put the point slightly differently, it means that the process of rendering the hand in the painting can now begin, i.e. that the creative business of painting the hand can now begin, now that the rehearsal, as it were, is over. 
Whereas when Beethoven endorses a sketch of a melody, the creative process is already by that fact alone complete, at least in the relevant respect. His melody has now been composed. <clears throat> so autographic sketches, if endorsed, mark a beginning in the creative process, whereas allographic sketches, if endorsed, mark an ending. Sketches that are for the moment neither rejected nor endorsed remain experiments. What ifs, tryouts, dry runs. And that's so for sketches of either kind. In what follows, I'm going to refer to those ones that have been neither endorsed nor rejected, just as, as, as hypotheticals. So if, if the stuff just now is right, or roughly right, there are distinct, if overlapping, sets of reasons why we might take an interest in Leonardo's sketches on the one hand and Beethoven's on the other. Um, <clears throat> so from, from Leonardo's, we might hope, one, to gain a wider sense of his artistic oeuvre as a whole, since that oeuvre includes his sketches, whether endorsed or not. Two, to get a clearer idea by comparing the sketches with the end products of how the rejection endorsement process went in his case. Three, to understand the way or ways in which he managed the transition from endorsed sketch to finished product. And four, to discover what he was interested in, which hypotheticals he thought it worth entertaining and about what. From Beethoven's sketches, by contrast, we might, hope, we might hope to learn only the musical equivalents of two and four. We can learn nothing under one, since Beethoven's sketches are not part of his oeuvre, and nothing under three, since, in the allographic case, there is no transition from endorsed sketch to finished product. The two are, in the relevant respects, identical. If Nietzsche is right, moreover, the same ought to be true of a philosopher's sketches. We should be able to learn from them only how the rejection endorsement process went in his case and what he thought it worth entertaining hypotheticals about and which ones they were. Now, I noted a moment ago that Kant would have disagreed with Nietzsche's running together of philosophy with art. The reasons for this are quite involved but we can summarise them roughly by saying that what Kant calls finality amounts to different things and is settled in different ways in the two cases. In art, finality, subjective finality as Kant calls it, is determined by the artist's judgment of taste, that this work or a part of an, or a part or an aspect of it is now complete. Where the artist's judgment, his fiat in effect, means not only that he regards his labours as over, but that by, by that very fact, his labours are over, that his art, or a part, or an aspect of it, is now subjectively final. In philosophy, by contrast, a thinker's fiat means only that he regards his labours as over, <clears throat> not that the relevant finality, non-subjective in this case, has been realised. This isn't an essay about Kant, though, so let's put a point like this. In art, finality is settled by the artist. When he says that it's finished, it's finished. In philosophy, finality is settled by considerations in addition to the thinker's fiat. 
For example, <coughs> excuse me. For example, considerations of coherence, interest, power, which means that when he says job done, he might be wrong. The finality of his thought may lie beyond what he regards as the finished product. And he might be unaware of the fact. Another way to bring out the point is this. When we say of e.g. a symphony that it's unsatisfactory in this or that respect, we're under no obligation to do anything like recomposing it in order to back our judgment. Whereas when we say the same of an essay in philosophy, we are obliged to say, in effect, where it goes wrong and precisely how, and what it should have said instead. So in the former case, our entirely optional efforts at revision, that's the symphony case, would result in a different finality from the composer's own. In the latter case, the philosophical case, our necessary effort, efforts would result in another crack of the original thinker's original finality. Now let's accept, purely provisionally and just for the moment, that Kant's right about all that. <coughs> that art and philosophy do indeed differ in the kinds of finality proper to them, and they differ in something like the ways that I've just set out. So, so this is purely provisional, okay? So I'm going to say lots of false things in a minute, and they're not my fault, they're Kant's. Okay, please. <coughs> if so, in other words, if we agree to agree with Kant for the moment about all of that, this means that even if it remains true that a work of philosophy and a work of, say, music are both anagraphic, it doesn't follow from that that the sketches for them stand in the same relations to their respective finalities, and so it doesn't follow that the reasons to be interested in the philosopher's sketches are identical to those to be interested in a composer's. It's still true, I think, that we can learn from both how the rejection endorsement process went in their cases, and also learn what interested them, which hypotheticals they thought it worth entertaining, and about what. But since a philosopher's finality, unlike a composer's, may lie beyond what he regards as his finished product, there may be things to be learned too from the relations between his sketches and the finality that his finished product, perhaps, has failed to realise. I should say that, you know, for the sake of simplicity, I'm treating the sketch stroke finished product distinction as if it were completely clear-cut and transparent in loads and loads and loads of cases. It obviously isn't. And in one subset of those cases where it isn't, I'll be coming back to those instances a bit later. But for the time being, I'm just treating it as, as if we all knew what the difference between the sketch and the finished product was. <coughs> so that has the effect of narrowing the gap between the philosopher's sketches and what he takes to be his finished product, since both now stand in an essentially sketch-like relation to the finality of his thought. It also softens the distinction between the sketches that have been rejected and those that have been endorsed, since the former may, at least in principle, stand in more informative relations to the relevant finality than the latter do. Thus, while it is of no help to an unsuccessful work of art, whether autographic or allographic, that the sketches for it were better, to an unsuccessful work of philosophy it might be, since from them we might hope to realise the finality that eluded the work itself. The authority of the artist's fiat, in other words, means that his sketches 
once he has rejected or not endorsed them, cannot be brought to his rescue. Whereas the same is not necessarily true in the philosopher's case. So how authoritative is the philosopher's fiat? So far I've said only that while it may be decisive in settling whether he takes his labours to be over, it cannot settle whether he has realised his end, his finality. But its rich runs further than that might imply, even if it does so at a lower voltage than the artist's. So, for example, if a philosopher has endorsed a sketch and it appears in his finished product, this gives it a pro tanto authority that is not enjoyed by his rejected or unendorsed sketches. And this is so despite the fact that his finished product may itself stand as a kind of uber sketch to the finality that he hoped to realise. And the reason for this, evidently, is that the finality in a question is in a certain sense his, i.e. is the one that he was after. Which means that in reconstructing his thought in the light of his sketches, we're not just concerned to discover what he really thought, but what he really thought. Of course, the borderline between, between the two might be entirely porous. In a really good case, you know, the two are actually going to coincide. What he really thinks is the truth, and that's what he really thinks. Excellent result. On the face of it, therefore, we should accord pro tanto authority to a philosopher's sketches in the following order and in decreasing amounts. The endorsed ones, the hypotheticals, the rejects. But matters are a little bit more complicated than that for two sorts of reasons. First, while it's easy enough to distinguish endorsed sketches from hypotheticals and rejects, given that the former feature in the thinker's finished products, it may be much harder to distinguish between the latter two, i.e. <coughs> between hypotheticals and rejects. Of course, if a sketch is crossed out, or its author has written a great big no next to it, we can reasonably conclude that it's a reject. But whether or no such indications, the evidence available to us is bound to be oblique. We might conclude that a sketch is a reject, perhaps, if it has gone unendorsed in its author's subsequently published writings for a sufficiently long time, or if it conflicts with enough of its author's published remarks on the same topic, or if it seems irrelevant even to its author's most peripheral concerns. But really, we can't be sure, and most likely, it'll come down to an educated guess. <clears throat> The other source of added complexity is, is simply the range of reasons that we might have for taking an interest in a particular sketch or sketches. So for instance, we might want to gauge the general tenor of a philosopher's thinking in a particular period in his life, in which case his rejected sketches might be just as significant as anything else. Or we might want to trace the genesis of a specific finished product, or to identify the finality of that product, or a period in his thinking, or of his thought as a whole. And there are other possibilities too, plenty of them. The point, though, is that depending on our own finality as the thinkers' interpreters, the sorts of evidence that his sketches provide, and for what, may vary rather widely, and so too the status of those sketches as evidence. Which means that although the apparently sensible hierarchy set out a moment ago with endorsed sketches at the top seems a safe enough bet, it isn't any sort of certainty. <clears throat> Okay, earlier, for the sake of what's just gone before, I provisionally agreed with Kant that what finality amounts to in an artist's case is fundamentally different from what it amounts to in a philosopher's. 
in the sense that the artist is settled without remainder by his judgment of taste, by his de declaration, this is finished. I also said that, having granted that, it can be of no help to an unsuccessful work of art, whether autographic or allographic, that the sketches for it were better. It's now time to revisit both parts of this, i.e. the provisional agreement and what follows from it. <clears throat> as far as autographic works are concerned, I think that the headline news stays much the same whether or not we agree with Kant. When a painter, say, deems his work done, signs it, sends it to his dealer, sells it to a client, etc., it's finished, final. And to that work, signed, sent or sold, it is indeed of no help that the sketches for it were better. The finished product is going to have to stand by itself. But this doesn't mean that the unendorsed sketches for it are neither, neither here nor there. As I said above, they might give, give us a better grasp of, for example, the ways in which the artist managed the rejection endorsement process in this particular case. And these insights may well be relevant, even decisive, to an interpretation of at least some things about that finished product. We can see from the sketches, for example, what he was trying to bring off here. And it's this that accounts, let's say, for a certain stiffness in the execution, or for some infelicities of design, or for the fact that this advantage has been sacrificed to that one. We can now make better sense of what's before us, in other words. And in that much, the painter's sketches have helped us to understand his finished product. It's more likely, though, I think, that we'll worry whether the provisional agreement with Kant about allographic works was entirely sensible. For here, I think, there's a temptation to say that the headline news really has to change quite substantially. Indeed, the temptation is to say that everything claimed a moment ago about a philosopher's sketches applies equally to e.g. a composer's. Mutatis mutandis, these amount to these. These claims at least include the following. So, A, a composer's finality is settled by considerations in addition to his fiat, for example, considerations of coherence, interest, power. B, the finality of a composer's creative activity may lie beyond what he regards as his finished product, and he might be unaware of the fact. C, there may be things to be learned from the relations between his sketches and the finality that his finished product perhaps has failed to realise. The composer's sketches and what he takes to be his finished product can both stand, in an, no, sorry, do both stand in an essentially sketch-like relation to the finality of his creative activity. A composer's rejected sketches may, in principle, stand in more informative relations to his, to his finality than his endorsed ones do. If the rejected sketches are better, we might hope to realise from them the finality that eluded the work of the composition itself. And it makes sense to distinguish between what a composer took his finality to be and what we take it to have been. The temptation, then, is to say that if the original versions of these claims are good for the philosopher's sketches, so are these updated versions for the composers. And the further temptation, of course, is discuss each of them in turn, one by one, but life is short. And I'm just going to focus on two issues, um, <clears throat> both of which suggest, at least on the face of it, that we do best to resist temptation and to stick with Kant. And what that amounts to in this case is rejecting all of those claims. 
So I'm going to look at a couple of reasons why we might want to side with Kant here and reject this lot. The first concerns the nature of the composer's finality. Let's agree for the sake of argument that, as claim B says, a composer's finality may lie beyond what he takes to be his finished product, just as a philosopher's might. But should we accept, as claim A says, that what settles that finality, in addition to the composer's fiat, are considerations specifically of coherence, interest, power? Or, to take a couple of steps back, shouldn't we have asked just the same question about the philosopher's finality? Why accept that coherence, interest, power are the relevant qualities in this case, in his case, rather than, say, truth? After all, a very good reason for suspecting that a philosopher's finality may have eluded him is that some of his unendorsed sketches on a particular topic make more plausible or interesting claims about it than the endorsed ones do. So we might say to ourselves, look, in his sketchbooks, he glimpsed the truth that he was aiming at, but he either didn't notice the fact or failed to transfer it properly to his finished product. Indeed, it's at least in part because we take a philosopher to be aiming at truth, first and foremost, perhaps, that we are, on the whole, willing to accept that his finality, or this or that aspect of his finality, may indeed have escaped his best efforts to nail it down. For truth, as we know, can be slippery. The composer, on the other hand, is not aiming at truth, i.e. His, final his finality is not, as the philosopher's is, constrained or settled by alethic considerations in addition to his own fiat. When we say that his finality, as it turned out, lay beyond his finished product then, we don't mean that there was something specific, for example, a particular truth, that he aimed at and missed. We mean, rather, that had his creative activity gone better, the finished product itself would have been better. Or, to put the point another way, we mean that the composer's mistake was to say, this is finished, too soon, before a properly formed judgment of taste would have declared the work done. And that's, of course, exactly what Kant would have held. And so if we've landed in this kind of Kantian position, then it looks as if we have reason to stick with Kant and so should resist temptation to carry over these claims that it seems sensible to make about a philosopher into the, um, into the compositional realm, as it were. Now, I, I want to reject that argument for sticking with Kant. Yep. I'm perfectly happy to grant that the composer is not aiming at truth, and so that the finality of his activity is not settled by alethic considerations. But he is aiming at something else, and let's be nice and old-fashioned about it and, and, and call it beauty. And in aiming at that, surely, he might miss, i.e., it might be perfectly reasonable to say of him that his finality lay beyond his finished product, that it eluded him, slipped through his fingers, and so on. Kant probably would hold that those are just misleading ways of saying what he himself would want to say, namely that the composer's judgment of taste went off, as it were, half-cocked and prematurely. But it amounts to more than that. Indeed, it amounts, as the following example shows, to a vindication of claims C and E. 
Suppose, for instance, that a composer's sketches for a particular work show that he was experimenting with different ways of modulating to the chromatic submediant. Suppose, too, that his sketches show that he was concerned, amongst other things, to come up with a way of doing this that would be striking but without disrupting the harmonic flavour of the passage as a whole. And suppose, finally, that he rejected a better sketch in favour of the one that he endorsed. As far as I can see, this would be exactly the same as the philosopher who, in his sketches, glimpses the truth that he was aiming at but fails to notice the fact. The composer is blind to the beauty of the superior sketch. Now, if this is right, it doesn't show that there was some single target that the philosopher and the composer respectively failed to hit. But it does show that, along the dimensions proper to them, the alethic or the aesthetic, the unendorsed sketches might of either might outscore the endorsed ones. And that means that, contra Kant, the composer's finality is not settled without remainder by his judgment of taste. So we certainly shouldn't stick with Kant on these grounds. The other prima facie reason for sticking with Kant again concerns the thought that it's of no help to an unsuccessful work of art that the sketches for it were better. A moment ago, we saw that the superiority of a sketch might help us to identify the finality that eluded the work itself. But this hardly helps the work. If anything, it underlines its failure. So how should we understand the idea that just as the superiority of the philosopher's unendorsed sketches might help his finished product, so the superiority of a composer's might help his. What, in other words, is help supposed to mean here? In the philosopher's case, I think that the answer is reasonably clear, even if it has several layers. If, as the original version of claim F had it, we might hope to realise from the philosopher's superior sketches, the finality that eluded his finished product, the latter might be helped in at least three ways. So first, where the endorsed sketch is ambiguous or unclear, but can be read as if it said what the superior sketch says, the finished product would obviously be better for being read that way. Second, where one does not obtain, but the larger argument is more convincing or consistent when the unendorsed sketch is substituted for the endorsed one, the finished product will be improved by being read as if its author had made a different, i.e. a better decision about what to include. And third, and, and really crazily tenuously, but anyway, I offer it for what it's worth, where even two does not obtain, and the philosopher's unendorsed sketches, or a subset of them, collectively amount to more than the finished product does, the finished product might be said to be redeemed, if not really strictly speaking helped, in a sense, by standing as the monument to its author's surely interesting and possibly even heroic misreading or misestimation of his own sketches. In cases two and three, we'll be owed an explanation, presumably, of the philosopher's misjudgments. But where that's satisfactorily forthcoming, we may well be willing to regard the results not only as interpretations of that work, but as ways of reading it that give it a, give it a helping hand. 
So the present reason for sticking with Kant is, in effect, that help cannot mean the same in the composer's case. We can perhaps imagine an an analogue of one. So to return to the modulation example of a moment ago, it is at least conceivable that the endorsed sketch can be voiced in performance, i.e. in interpretation, in such a way that what was better in the superior sketch the composer himself rejected can just about be heard in it. I mean, that's at least in principle possible. By hypothesis, that would help the work by improving it. But it's much harder to imagine analogues of two or three. The former would amount to a recomposition of the work, the latter to the replacement of it by something else. And it's difficult to see how the work itself, i.e. the work that the composer declared finished, is helped by either measure. The total aesthetic value of the world might go up, as it were, but the help has been to that, not to the finished product whose finality eluded it. Now, of course, there might be a temptation to say exactly the same thing in the philosopher's case. His finished product is not helped, we might say, by being rewritten or replaced by sketches that he himself rejected. But I think the temptation here is much weaker. And the reason for that to return to the first failed case for sticking with Kant, is there is indeed an important difference in nature between the philosopher's finality and the composer's. The philosopher aims at truth, the composer at beauty. And truth, but not beauty, to put it rather portentously, transcends its own embodiment. I can best bring out what I mean by this, I think, by turning to one of my favourite sections from the Philosophical Investigations goes like this. We speak of understanding a sentence in the sense in which it can be replaced by another which says the same, but also in the sense in which it cannot be replaced by any other, any more than one musical theme can be replaced by another. In the one case, the thought in the sentence is something common to different sentences. In the other, something that is expressed only by these words in these positions, understanding a poem. So truth we might say, attaches to propositions, and these can always be expressed in other words that say the same. So truth is not tied to any single way of stating it. Whereas beauty attaches only to these words in these positions, a poem, as Wittgenstein has it, or with notes in the place of words, a theme in music. And it's no mistake that its examples (coughs) are both allographic. And this means that a philosopher's finality is more detachable, as it were, from his finished product, and indeed from his sketches, than a composer's is, and so that he might feel freer, quite rightly, to take liberties with the sketches that he actually endorsed. That's why two and three, to remind ourselves of those, two and three um, don't carry over convincingly to a composer's sketches. I mean, another way to put the point is to say that if, as claim G says, it makes sense to distinguish between what a composer took his finality to be and what we take it to have been, this licenses fewer liberties with the former than in the case where the finality in question is a philosopher's. And that's simply because truth and beauty are not, in the relevant sense, a kind of a Keatsian unity. They're not the same thing. So given all of that, We can say that Kant was both right and wrong. 
he was wrong that the finality of an allographic work is, is, is settled without remainder by the artist's judgment of taste. An artist in aiming at beauty can miss, and his sketches can tell us what eluded him. But he was right, by and large, about autographic works of art, and right, too, that philosophy and e.g. music are at least as importantly different from one, one another, contra Nietzsche, as they are interestingly similar. And the reasons for that, at bottom, are the Wittgensteinian ones given a moment ago. The ways in which Kant was right should not, however, be allowed to achieve the consequences of his having also been wrong. For instance, because claim B is in fact true, so too is claim D, that a composer's sketches and what he takes to be his finished product both stand in an essentially sketch-like relation to the finality of his activity. And this, for all that the finalities proper to them differ in the ways that I've said, puts the composer in this respect in the philosopher's camp, which has consequences. <clears throat> when Kant wrote the B edition of the first critique in 1787, he had no hesitation in publishing it as a version of the same work under the same title. And in doing so, he in effect outed the A edition, published six years earlier, as having never been more than a sketch for the finality that he hoped to realise. From his own point of view, he was, of course, right in both respects. After all, according to him, a philosopher's finality is not settled without remainder by his declaring it's finished. But then what would he be obliged to say when a composer does, apparently, exactly the same thing? When Anton Bruckner, for, for example, revised his fourth symphony, originally published in 1874, first in 1880 and then again in 1888. In Kant's view, these would have to count as three separate works, each separate, separately legislated into existence by Bruckner's shifting judgments of taste. And that just intuitively kind of just can't be right. Both the 1880 and the 1888 editions of Bruckner's Fourth Symphony are obviously versions of it, i.e. of one and the same work, as Kant's A and B editions of both versions of the Critique of Pure Reason. So Kant's mistake matters. It obscures the sense in which what Bruckner did was just the same as what he himself did. And it makes it impossible for him to acknowledge that just as which version of his own work better reflects his real finality is to be settled by elitic considerations, so the parallel issue in Bruckner's case is to be settled by aesthetic ones, i.e. by considerations that go beyond his own judgment of taste. So, for example, Heidegger famously regarded the A edition of the first critique as the real thing, with the B edition relegated to the status of distracting noise. While Wolfgang Svalisch, the distinguished Bruckner conductor, always performed the 1880 version of the Fourth Symphony, which he clearly thought superior to the alternatives, including the 1888 one, which was Bruckner's last word on the matter. But both decisions, Heidegger's and Svalisch's, at least make sense, show that Nietzsche was right, within limits and contra Kant, to think of philosophy and music as having something importantly in common. Something that emerges, I think, when we reflect on the nature of sketches for each. 
Okay, I've, I've got a final bit at the end, which I'll spare you, because I think I'm out of a civilised amount of time. But let, let me just tell you what the bit at the end that you're not going to get is. Um, so from your point of view, the good news is that it's about Nietzsche. Um, so, so, so that's going. But what you might have quite enjoyed about it is that the conclusion is that none of what I've said in the whole essay up to this point turns out to be the least bloody use in making sense of Nietzsche's own sketches, which I think is entirely typical of him. Thank you. Mm -hmm. <laughs>